From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Hello and welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 154 for the week of June 13th, 2013. I'm Michael Bowling and I'm joined by my special guest, Pam burns Claire. In my Hello. Ongo- Hello, Pam, thank you and welcome to the Diz Unplugged. Thanks. In my ongoing series, Windows on Main Street, we're going to learn about the people honored on the Disneyland windows who work to make Disneyland the happiest place on earth for all of us. Windows on Main Street are dedicated to Disney cast members who are responsible for designing, building, and enabling the creation of Disneyland Park. The windows are few and the honor is high. In today's show, we will talk about the first lady of Imagineering, Disney legend Harriet Burns. It is my honor to welcome Harriet Burns' daughter, Pam Burns-Claire, to tell us about her mother. Pam Burns-Claire, MFT, is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in Napa, California, and daughter of the late Disney legend Harriet Burns. She specializes in women's issues, having been raised by a mom who was in many ways a pioneer for women entering the professional world in the 50s, has authored several articles, taught classes and workshops in her field, and lives in Sonoma, California with her husband and their two daughters, as their two daughters move out into the world to make their own Mark. Pam, thank you for joining us on the Diz Unplugged. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's an honor. Oh, thank you. Um, your mother, Harriet Burns, was the first woman hired at WED Enterprises, now known as Walt Disney Imagineering, in a creative position rather than as an office worker. And your mother received right. a bachelor's degree in art from Southern Methodist University in Dallas and studied advanced design at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque before moving to Los Angeles with you and your father. Um, how did she come to the attention of Walt Disney? She was working at a props company called Dice Incorporated in Southern California, about an hour from L.A., and they were going under. And uh, she had done some colorful projects for them, including Santa's Village and some Las Vegas displays. It seemed like her specialty at that time was display. Um, and she was alerted to openings at the Disney Studios, so she applied. The opening that she applied for had to do with the Mouseketeers and the props and costumes and the Mouseketeer show, the TV show. So that's what she was intended for, and uh, one thing led to another. So for those of us who watched the Mickey Mouse Club either in its original run or in reruns or on DVDs, what would we have seen of your mother's work when we watched the show? You know, I think it was just a very few months that she worked uh, for the Mouseketeers before she was transferred to the model shop, as it was known then, and uh, all I know is that it was the props and the costumes, but I don't know the, any more specifics yeah. than that. She got to know the Mouseketeers and really enjoyed getting to know them as young people. But I never heard any uh, actual stories about that because I think it was very shortly after that she got whisked over uh-huh. to the model shop. I, I know one of the things she designed was the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse 
prop. Uh-huh, that's right. That, You're right. That we all remember. And uh-huh. I know the interesting thing was, I, I think one of the things that caught Walt Disney's eye was how your, your mother's use of color and, uh-huh. and, and the Mickey Mouse Club was being, even though it aired in black and white, it was being filmed in color that impressed your mother about Walt Disney, that he had the foresight to do that. Uh-huh. So, it's true. She was impressed by him from day one. <laughs> he was always on the cutting edge, and she very much admired that, his spirit of entrepreneurness and adventure and vision. And uh, she always talked about him with a sparkle. And we'll talk more about her relationship with him um, later on in our show. Um, now, uh-huh. soon, soon Harriet was part of the WED group working on Disneyland, and from his experience as an animator and filmmaker, Walt Disney knew a painting or drawing could fool the viewer. So he preferred to see his projects more clearly in three dimensions through models. Um, Walt once said a model may cost $5,000, but it's sure less expensive than $50,000 to fix the real thing. Uh, and your mother helped create models um, for opening day attractions, including Sleeping Beauty Castle. Um, she helped construct Storybook Land, which is one of my favorite attractions, mm-hmm. um, with models depicting scenes from Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Pinocchio, um, Mr. Toad, and others. One of the things that impresses me about Storybook Land was the detail that went in there. And, and like you using leaded, real leaded glass. Right, you know, you know, in the models rather than just, um, you know, because who would notice that except, you know, Walt Disney. Right. <laughs> well, one of the funny stories about the leaded glass used for the chapel in Storybook Land is that she had a detailed design laid out on her desk and of the leaded glass for the stained glass windows of the chapel. And he came along and said, what's this? He picked it up and it shattered. It fell in a million pieces. And so from that, they learned to um, invite Walt after the things were already in place, that when they were in progress, quite often things would get set back by his eagerness to touch and be hands-on. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. um um, now, your mother attended the opening day of Disneyland, and we were, we were talking prior to the show, and I mean, you, were, you were there as well with your father. But I you're, was. You were very young. So I, I was know, just three. Yeah. So now, what, what stories do you remember from that day, opening day of Disneyland? I don't actually remember the day itself, but I was told it was excruciatingly hot and that the crowds were at least double what they expected and they ran out of water. And I was told the ladies' high heels sank into the recently poured asphalt. Uh, so it was a, a, a huge boom um, and, and that it was kind of chaotic, crowded and chaotic on a 105 or something like that, you know, heat wave day in L.A., did did your mother have any responsibilities um, on opening day at Disneyland? She did, but I don't know specifically what they were. I just know that she talked about how everybody was scattered in a million different ways and that she couldn't believe that the, the park would actually open days beforehand and uh, many of her colleagues were working day and night. She talked a lot about Fred Jerger just being run ragged, and that was her 
uh, she called him as par- her partner in crime because <laughs> uh, they were on most of the projects together. But he was a bachelor and she was married with a family, so I guess they spared her doing the all-nighters was my impression anyway. Oh. Like I now, said I was quite young. Yeah, now I know Fred Jerger and her, they they had quite a um, repartee, quite a banter <laughs> together. <laughs> They did. She called him Bush Ape all through my childhood. He was her Bush Ape. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. It was her nickname (laughs) for him, and we have only speculations now as to how that evolved. But lots of cards from him uh, that we found that she she saved all through the years uh, had the initials B.A., and my dad enjoyed him also. They would socialize together with him. My mom and Fred shared uh, very similar tastes in art and design for their homes and traveling. You know, they would get each other goodies on their travels. They both collected pre-Columbians, and they were very fond of European art. So it, it went on and on. Their, their repartee, as you put it. <laughs> now, now, those of us who grew up watching Walt Disney Presents in a Wonderful World of Color on television, or who have the Disney Treasures, um, your host, Walt Disney DVD, can remember seeing your mother featured on the show with Walt Disney and other Imagineers. She always appeared to be a lady in every sense of the word and was impeccably dressed. Uh, yet I imagine there were a lot of antics, since we're talking about her co-workers, among the male Imagineers, that many would be, and a lot would be considered inappropriate in today's workplace. <laughs> I assume your mother was able to join right in with their antics. She was. Somehow, even though she only had one brother and he was rather shy and and introverted, she seemed to get along just fine with sort of male locker room humor. We might refer to it now as maybe it was growing up in Texas, um, but she was quite comfortable among them and had a kind of wicked sense of humor herself, and they played a lot of practical jokes on each other and had a lot of nicknames. And I grew up thinking that all artists just had these weird names because she referred to one as Rapunzel, Teehee, Roly Crump. You know, it goes on. You know many of their names, and they actually are their names. But I just thought artists had weird names. It never occurred to me that my mom didn't have a weird name, although her family knew her as Tippy. But I don't think that's what they called her at the studio. Right. You know, your mother's nickname was Tippy Tap or Miss Tippy Tap? Tippy tap, and that was yeah. from a childhood reference. She was tiny, and she taught herself to tap dance. And her last name, as a child, was Tap T A P P. <laughs> so they referred to her as Tippy Tap, and and my cousins still refer to her as Aunt Tippy. Uh, now, speaking of nicknames, though, your mother had a nickname for Walt Disney that was Yellow Shoes, because he, I believe, he had mustard-colored golf shoes. I'm not aware of that, but oh. it sounds like Mickey's shoes. <laughs> yeah. And, I never and, referred to her. I never heard her refer to him as that. Yeah, and, and apparently this this became a code name for Walt around Imagineering, so that with the switchboard operator would announce Yellow Shoes Alert over the loudspeaker whenever <laughs> Walt drove into the parking lot. And then your mother said that's we knew then we had to sort of sharpen everything up. <laughs> I didn't hear that. You know, she spared me some of these stories about the 
antics of the workplace because she wanted to raise me proper and responsible and kind of up and up. And some of what went on in that workplace I've learned later, you know, in my adult years, wasn't so up and up yeah. <laughs> by yeah, I heard child she, standards. <laughs> well, I heard she enjoyed telling the off-color joke or two. Uh-huh, she did. <laughs> but like I said, I was spared those until later when I found the cards and heard the stories, um, you know, from her colleagues, mostly at her memorial and also in the the cards and letters that came pouring uh to us after she passed away. And I thought that was something very touching about her is um, how, that she saved every card that she yes. was sent and even the, even cards that were attached to flowers. And I, I just... Yes. And I, I just think that... I don't know. I, you know, some people say it's sentimental, but I think it indicates how much she valued people, the, the people she in did. her life. She really valued her relationships, and uh, everyone was special. You know, the secretary and the, the mailman and uh, the flower delivery person, you know, the milkman. In fact, the milkman um, who delivered the bottles of milk in my childhood became her inspiration for one of the pirates that still sits on the bridge to this day wearing knickers and has a, a, a lot of hairy legs and a hairy head with a cap on. And so she she was very observant and took her relationships very seriously. You know, I'll never be... That's my favorite attraction, Pirates of the Caribbean. I will always think of your milkman now. Whenever I... <laughs> I always look at that pirate when I go under. Because every once in a while, they take him out to get spruced up. And I always uh-huh. notice he's gone. Now I'm always going to wonder, where's the milkman? You right. Know, well, milkman. most of the time, he's there up on the bridge. <laughs> With his leg dangling. How interesting. And now, speaking of relationships, what was your mother's relationship with Walt like? They were very fond of each other. They had kind of an affinity for miniatures. They both were really uh, taken by miniatures. And in that time, the train miniatures, the, the train collecting was very uh, popular. So there were a lot, a lot of miniatures available at train stores and dollhouse materials. Uh, when Walt came back from Paris, he brought her a whole bunch of miniatures that he collected, dollhouse primarily, and uh, those became hers to work with for models. So that was one of their collections, and in fact, that's how the uh, fake name for the window front of her window on Main Street was uh, concocted. Mm-hmm. It has a reference to miniatures. I, re- I remember reading when they... Um, when she built the model for the Matterhorn, and they they used it for an event, and in order to show the um, bobsleds running, she used miniature trains, and then she, and in order for them to move properly, I think she had to use like stockings or something nylons in order to uh-huh. connect the cars so they would move properly. And I thought, how creative! I mean, who would have? thought of something like that i was impressed well, she was with a how saver. Innovative. she saved all the materials and used them you know the, a lot of what they did like you say was innovative and they were inventive they had to be inventive because there wasn't a lot of the materials that are available now and she had uh, such envy of the current day imagineers as she would tour their studios because they had all kinds of materials that that you know weren't available in her time so they uh, used 
sort of recycled materials quite often. And uh, I would hear about that at dinner, that, you know, she would talk about some of their uh, explorations. And some of our household materials got used. <laughs> well, I was wondering, did she ever bring her work home with her? No, I don't think they were allowed to do that, but she brought home scraps. So I had lots of scraps of felt and uh, cardstock, which in those days wasn't so easy to get at the dime store, we called it. Um, so there was a lot of innovative materials that would come home as kind of debris <laughs> <laughs> that we recycled for art projects and things. Now, One now, of the I, projects that we did is we molded doorknobs for the closet doors in my parents' bedroom, and they were kind of like the shape of big flowers or mandalas, but we molded them out of some kind of toxic plastic material that she knew how to do that and who thinks to make their own doorknobs, you know? Really? Wow. Well, she was an artist. She was. And so that inventive spirit was uh, part of my childhood. Both my dad yeah. and my mom were very inventive and innovative in their choices. Well, I remember one of your relatives writing about how, when they visited your home, how impressed they were that they have regular faucets in their home, but, <laughs> but at, at your mother's house, the faucets were fish. And they thought that was just so magical. <laughs> yeah, there was a spirit of uh, imagination and adventure about their choices because we remodeled our house for seven years while I was growing up. So it was always in construction. Mm -hmm. uh, much like Disneyland, how it's never, as yes. long as there's imagination <laughs> left in the world, your house would never be completed. That's right. That's how it felt. <laughs> Now, your mother worked on so many uh, attractions that are our favorites. Um, she, When she started working in what we call Imagineering, she worked on the elaborate plumage of the tiki birds for Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. Mm -hmm. And what, what I loved is how, you know, one of the things that impresses me, and that's our, our four-year-old granddaughter, the singing birds, is a, a not-miss attraction. She loves it. And I always... Have was always impressed by the detail in that you see all the birds breathing, and I thought the attention to detail is remarkable because our I'm sure our four year old granddaughter those birds are alive and that's part of the reason. They're real, yeah. And, mm -hmm. But yet your mother was having a challenge with the birds breathing and, and their feathers lying properly, but it was Walt Disney's sweater, sweater. that resolved the problem. Can you tell us about that? Uh, he would move his elbow and she noticed that the sweater gave way when he would uh, stretch out his elbow and then bend it again and she thought that's what I need to make these feathers expand and contract with the breathing. So she used some kind of sweater material under the feathers and that's what worked. Yeah. So your mother just must have had an incredible eye for detail. She, she did. I she, gotta say, she was rather compulsive about detail. It was really a pain when I was supposed to clean my room or do the dishes, and it it wasn't sufficient. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that oh, that that's, that reminds me of when my children were little, and I and it was the same thing. I'd say, uh, okay, is your room cleaned? And they'd say, uh, to my standards or your standards. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't allowed to challenge that. It was always mom's standards, and <laughs> yeah. it seemed like it fell short much of the time. Mm -hmm. 
So now your mother also worked on the attractions for the 64-65 World's Fair, including... Uh-huh, that was a big deal. Yeah, so can you tell us about that? Well, it was uh, very consuming, and she would make reference to the pavilions, you know, the uh, Ford Pavilion, or um, uh, I, I'm spacing, Kodak Pavilion. There were There were big corporations that were sponsoring these projects, and there were huge deadlines, and it was a, a, a monumental um, challenge for them to both bring it up to standards, to have it be world-class showcase material, and to get it done on time. And I was about 13, 14 when all that was going on, so it was very intense, and uh, she was pretty caught up in it. I'll bet. I mean, because the, those the attractions that ended up making their way to Disney World included "It's a Small World," um, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, and the Carousel of Progress. And now I know that one of the things she was she was a figure was it figure finisher? Uh huh. That's was what they that? referred to it as. And and what does so that, that mean? When the audio animatronics were developed, Lincoln being the first of those projects. Uh, they were props that could move and looked real. Mm-hmm. Um, so making Lincoln, you know, the, the mecha- machinists would make him movable under his skin, and then it was her job to make them look real. So as Blaine Gibson put it in one of his interviews about my mom, I would create the, the pirates or the tiki birds, and she would bring them to life. Mm-hmm. One of the things I learned was that your mother created the skin for the first audio animatronic figures. Uh huh. Is because they were having a devil of a time. The skin would only last a month before it deteriorated significantly. And your mother, through, I don't know, she had the, just through experiment after experiment, designed a workable, long lasting elastic skin. For, for Mr. Lincoln and Carousel of Progress figures and so on. And I thought that's remarkable. <laughs> uh, yes, it was part of that innovative inventiveness. And <laughs> all I know about it is that some of the, the flops, the, the bloopers, would come home. And she saved those. And so in her basement we found parts of the pirates. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and I used the hands of one of those bloopers when I was a witch in the fifth grade. Um, and so this was just at the beginning of the project of audio animatronics when I was that age. And so these two old lady-looking hands came home that were up to about the, the elbow, sort of the, the lower part of the arms. So I carried those under my witch costume, and they hung down low and I was able to shake them at people. They were kind of rubber-like substances, and uh, it scared people at Halloween. It was one of my favorite Halloweens, going as a witch <laughs> with these fake arms. Oh, that's great. So she did bring some of her work home with her. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the discards, the debris, so to speak. <laughs> so now was, I know in your book you talked about the dig when you went through some of your yeah. mother's belongings after she passed. Yes. So that that was the dig was the basement? Right. Where, where that was everything? the basement. And two two sort of forbidden rooms, my kids referred to them as, um, where she would store 
either treasures or gifts for people. She was always ready with a gift. If somebody had a new baby or it was someone's birthday or Christmas time, etc. So there was um, the treasures that she brought home from um, work, like like we were referring to, the, the pirate parts. Or um, when I was in the third grade, there was a project that didn't come to pass. And I realized there's not many projects that they designed that, that didn't actually come to pass. But one of them was the Rock Candy Mountain, which morphed into the Matterhorn. But they, they created a like a five-foot model to scale of this Rock Candy Mountain using candy from all over the world, Swiss candies, and uh, it included rock candy that looked like icicles. And when the project got canceled, Walt and John Hench looked at the model and decided it looked too sweet, so they canceled it. Um, My mom brought home boxes of the rock candy, and uh, we still to this day have some of this 50-year-old rock candy that we decorate our Christmas tree with. And at the time, I I sort of snitched a bunch of it and brought it to my third-grade classmates, and I was the most popular kid that day. (laughs) That's funny. But how nice that you have – what a unique memento, though, (laughs) that it's made into um, Christmas decorations. Christmas icicles to hang on the tree. And And it doesn't doesn't, uh, spoil. We still have intact 50-year-old rock candy, and in fact, the – Imagineering Archives Department asked for uh, some samples last year because they were recreating a display of Candy Mountain in California Adventure, I believe. Right. I was going to bring that up, that for folks who would like to see a a tribute, basically, to your mother, um, it's on Buena Vista Street in, in Disney California Adventure. There's a recreation of the Big Rock Candy Mountain model. It's in the window of Trolley Treats. The candy Great. shop. No, I haven't been there since it's been up. So I'll look forward to seeing that next trip. Yeah, definitely. It's it's not quite five feet tall, but you know, you look at it yeah. and think, wouldn't this have been cool? You know, if it had been built in Storybook Land, it would have uh-huh. been nice. <laughs> yeah. So now, your mother's talents ranged from creating models of buildings and mountains, human and animal figures caricature and realistic figures to the whimsical and set design, what were the sources of inspiration for her creativity in her projects? Well, I was thinking about that question, and it's multifaceted. Um, I think in my mom's background in the Depression, they had to be really creative and, and resourceful in order to have toys, that there weren't toy stores particularly. You know, that was the era of clothespin dolls and and recycling your uh, quilt or blanket into a toy. Um, So my mom was very resourceful and imaginative as a child. She talked all through her life about going to Moki's Ranch at four and five years old, where she got to spend maybe a week at a time. Uh, It was like a camp experience virtually, but it was very unusual, and, and it was a highlight of her childhood. And I would say that that camp or that experience at Moki's Ranch just gave her uh, endless imaginative possibilities. So that was sort of the the uh, precursor, shall we say, of her identity as an Imagineer. And then when she was hired, she was a really good researcher. So like for the Disney Castle, she became immersed in researching Neuschwanstein Castle 
in uh, Austria. Um, and anything that they were working on, she would hit the library and we'd have the books at home, you know, as well as at work. Uh, she'd bring home books from the Disney library, and she was a really good researcher. So in part, those were inspirations. Um, there were, and the, the recycled materials were often <laughs> inspirations. Um, one of the funny stories that we enjoy retelling and that she told at the conferences when she was asked to speak after she retired was about the hyenas at Small World. And Walt wasn't happy with the way their hair was sitting in the models that he was looking at, you know, in the model shop. He said, see if you can do something to fluff up their hair. So my mom sent the, she called it the messenger boy, out to Thrifty Drugstore for 12 Tony Home Perm Kits <laughs> to perm up their hair. And when the, the boy, the young man, checked out uh, and the clerk said, do you mind my asking what you're going to do with these? And he said, you don't even want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there were endless possibilities as to how they could come up with fixes for a problem. Uh, another story was that when they were doing the submarine ride, they had a hard time getting the mermaid's hair color. They would dye the mermaid's hair various different colors, green and pink and so forth, but the sun would fade them. And I'm not sure what they finally came up with to keep the color intact. But there were constant trial and error, you know, experiments going on. And, you know, I'm not sure quite what inspired these other than the fact that the sky was the limit and they were going to conquer these problems. So I don't right. know if that answers the question because it's a little uh, multifaceted, her sources of inspiration. And it sounds like a lot just came from her, from yeah. within. Yeah, and I know and Walt, she too. I'm sure was a source of inspiration because he was constantly envisioning, and she and he would kind of brainstorm together. I'm yeah. sure all the Imagineers, you know, the art directors would brainstorm with him, but she really enjoyed that. Yeah, we always hear about those days when when Walt was still alive, about the the sense of family and the sense of collaboration that existed. Yeah, you know, at Disney. Yeah, I think she lived that with him and with them. Yeah. And I know that well, that one of the thing, things your mother did do was she was the one that developed the non-fading paint for the, for the submarine lagoon. Uh-huh. And um you know and and that yeah and she had all these little containers with chlorine in them with all her different types of paint she was developing to see what would fade and what wouldn't and and also, she was like yeah. a chemist. She, yeah, like she a was chemist. a little bit of a chemist. Yes, she yeah. was. She loved chemistry. I did not, but she did. And uh, it's a wonder she lived as long as she did with all the toxic chemicals that she was exposed to and working with hands-on. And at that time, there wasn't any sense that they were dangerous. Uh, so that was just part of the job was breathing these toxic chemicals or handling them. She would tell me how much she loved working with lead. It was soft and pliable, and she enjoyed working with it um, as a substance, you know, with the lead windows and so forth. She was hands-on in it, so it's kind of amazing that she didn't die of lead poisoning earlier. Yeah. Um, now, did you ever have an opportunity to visit your mother at work? Yes, up until age 14, and the last time I remember visiting her, they had the pirates in the making for the Pirates of the Caribbean, 
and I was old enough to recognize that some of them weren't dressed properly and some of them were in lewd positions, <laughs> and that was part of the practical joking that went on backstage. And uh, that was the last time they allowed the families to come through uh, because the audio animatronics were getting noticed by other studios and there was concern about patenting and copies and so forth, copying. So they tightened up security and I could no longer go with my dad to pick her up. We had to wait outside for her to come out after that. Oh, that's too bad. In the so. mid-60s. They, they tightened up on security. But before that, it was fun to go visit her. And part of the fun was visiting the minor bird because Walt gave her a minor bird to study, and it was in a cage on her desk. And that was um, part of her legacy was being the uh, the master of the minor, minor bird. And it, it seems like it also gave the guys an excuse to come visit with her. Mm-hmm. And the minor bird learned some bad language from the colleagues, and so when Walt would come to do inspections, the minor bird would sometimes swear, and they would throw a sheet upon the minor bird to shut him up. (laughs) His name was Joker, so I enjoyed going to pick her up and and visiting with Joker the bird. (laughs) That's funny. I I remember when... I remember a story that's in your book about how um, one of the Imagineers, I guess, who came and helped... Um, with the dig, saw the cage and was very moved Jim because he Carno. remembered. Yeah, because he remembered Joker. Yeah. And, so and, he has it now. Mm-hmm. We we let him have the the cage and there's a fake bird in it and he's decorated it as as is depicted in the book. We have a picture of his revised uh, revived cage with some gloves of my mom's and some other knickknacks to uh, dress it up and keep my mom's spirit alive in that way. That's nice. That's really nice. Now, what was it like for you growing up and see your mother on television? I mean, did you realize she was, you know, sort of famous? Uh, At times, it was very exciting, and my cousins would watch it out of state, and so there were times when there was a hype, either about her being on TV or a movie coming out that, you know, we got to preview at the studio so there were times in my childhood that it was very exciting being the daughter of an Imagineer, uh, but there were it was mixed for me, both the glory and the fact that I had a full-time working mom where all my friends had homemaker moms. You know, it was sort of the era of Ozzie and Harriet, no pun intended, and I Love Lucy and, and Betty Crocker. So my mom was different by a long shot than the other moms. And so she was absent for some of my activities where the other moms were, were the homemaking kind of moms. But, so but, yet your, for me. Yeah, so, but yet your mother dressed just like all of those television icons, yes, you know, with the did. pearls the and just, yeah. So, but uh, more dressed up than my friend's moms because she was a working mom. So she did have the pearls and the heels and, and her hair was always coiffed and she had her earrings on and so forth. And those moms weren't quite as uh, dressed up most of the time. And these days, you know, the Imagineers, I'm sure, show up in jeans and sweatshirts for work. And uh, my mom was always in, uh, you know, a dress. She said she carried pants with her in a bag in the early days in case she had to climb up on a ladder because she worked with all these guys. Mm -hmm. But she was dressed, you know, with her heels and everything most every day at work, and then she would put on a smock, she called it, over her clothes. 
to protect them from paint and lead and things. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, now, what was a trip to Disneyland and Walt Disney World like with your mother since she worked on so many of the yeah. attractions? It was very exciting. That was part of the glory is that my cousins would come out most every summer and we would go to Disneyland or my grandmother's. We would go to Disneyland whenever the out-of-town company came and it was always really exciting and it was really fun to have my mom tell the stories of the tiki birds and when small world and the pirates came out that was really big fun and big excitement and i was very proud we went every year now now many of our listeners may not realize that your mother also worked on films such uh one of the most iconic scenes in mary poppins is when she's cleaning up the playroom with the children, your mother designed the Robin that Mary uh-huh. Poppins sings with. Um, can, you, can you tell us about her film work, what she did? There were only two films that I'm aware, well, actually three films, Babes in Toyland, Mary Poppins, and Darby O'Gill. Those are the ones that I'm aware of that she worked on. And that Robin was really a, a project because they had to study um, a uh, carcass of a, a Robin and you couldn't just get that easily so they had to go to a museum and you know natural history museum and and borrow the um, stuffed robin and um, so that was part of the research and the inspiration and then there was the challenge of making it come to life in a way that looked real um, so that was all part of her her research and prior to the tiki birds but that I was very proud of that robin singing on Mary Poppins's finger and and was happy to brag about it to my friends that was my mom's bird <laughs> i would tell them so now now your your mother worked on what's considered by many to be the greatest most immersive disney attraction pirates of the caribbean where your milkman we've learned now right. is resides Made an appearance uh-huh. yes. now the, this model was 40 feet long and one inch scale um what did your mother do for this attraction well, it was that figure finishing that you talked about earlier where she would bring the pirates to life. You know, she was given their heads in um, still form, and, and it was her job to get them all decorated with mustaches and, and skin coloring and um, hair and so forth to bring them to life. So it was quite a big project, and she loved it. They all loved it. It was very much a teamwork kind of a project. And I know Alice Davis was involved in the costuming, and uh, there, there was a team of them, and there were other other women at that point, you know, working on it with her. So uh, it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Now, during the pirates this... were darned ugly. You know, I I saw some of the bloopers. Like I said, she brought home one mask um, that was really darned ugly. <laughs> So um, now, now during this time, Walt Disney unexpectedly passed away. Um, now, how did his passing affect your mother? Oh, she was just shell shocked and so sad. And I remember the day and the kind of the moment when she got the phone call from Bill Cottrell, who was very close with our family. He lived down the street, and he was like an uncle to me. And he told her that Walt had just passed away. They knew he was in the hospital, but they didn't think much of it. Um, it didn't occur to them that he would be passing from lung cancer. Although about a month before, they said he didn't look good at the meeting. He looked kind of gray, and he was coughing a lot. So there was some 
concern and suspicion, but they didn't, you know, he was just so, so iconic that I don't think they saw him as mortal. So it was really quite a depressing day and shocking and kind of um, took her breath away, I would say. She was very sad, and we were all sad. You know, he was he was like a, a father figure in our household and in the world at that point. Now, did working at Wet Enterprises change for your mother after Walt Disney's passing? Yes, but gradually. I think it was over years, and um, there was some evolution as to who took over the company and how the direction went. So I would say the spirit of Walt was alive for maybe up to 10 years, and uh, it, it gradually changed over time. It, was, it became more corporate and, and less imaginative, and that was distressing to her. Mm-hmm. Now, now, your mother didn't limit herself to working on Disneyland. She also worked on attractions for the Magic Kingdom um, and Epcot at Walt Disney World, including um, the Morocco and Norway pavilions. And I know she worked on one of my very favorite attractions, which was the Mickey Mouse Review at the Magic Kingdom, which ultimately went to Tokyo, um, uh-huh. Disneyland. So, uh, so, th- that, so, so for our listeners who are Magic Kingdom, who, who live in Florida, um, you know, you can see Harriet Burns' work, you know, there. In, right. in, at, yeah, Epcot. Epcot was a big deal, and it was kind of coinciding with the New York World's Fair. And some of her colleagues, Joyce Carlson and Fred Zerger, got sent there and stayed there. And um, so it was a really big hype. I didn't uh, get a chance to go to Disney World until I turned 50, and my mom took our whole family for several days. And uh, it was really a, a treat to see what she had worked on all these years in person. And it was so big, we, we were really taken aback at how, how much bigger than Disneyland it was, how, how vast and how many different lands there were, like the Animal Kingdom. Right. That was a big treat. Yeah. And so oh. that's when I got to see Epcot for the first time, for real. Now, how, now okay, now what are your thoughts comparing Disneyland with the Magic Kingdom? How do those two compare to you, and how did they compare to your mother? Um, well, it's hard to say because of my age at the time. You know, Disneyland was my world at that time growing up, and that's I had no reference to anything else, you know. Mm-hmm. So when by the time I actually saw Disney World, I was 50. So it's hard for me to have any perspective on it. I just know that she got caught up in whatever she was working on at the time, and when it was the New York World's Fair, that was all she lived and breathed, and then when it was Epcot, it was, that was all she lived and breathed. And, and with all those projects, there were big deadlines. That's, that's what I remember from the dinner table. And, and, it's and sometimes remar- she didn't get home for dinner because she had to work late. And it's remarkable, you know, we, you talked earlier about the, the short deadlines for the World's Fair. When you think that Small World was done with in less than a year, when now it takes multiple years to build one attraction, the three major World Fairs attraction were done, you know, in the space of a year. Mm-hmm. So and with much less people to work less on. Less people it. and less resources. You know, yeah. you couldn't just crunch out uh, copies on a computer. 
Um, you know, the design work, uh, it, it was all very labor-intensive, and I just remember it being intense and stressful at those times when there were deadlines. And, of course, as I was approaching my teenage years, I was all caught up in my projects and my deadlines, so that was kind of tough on me. She was preoccupied. Yeah. Now, in 1986, after 31 years with Disney, your mother retired and became active in the art and music community. On October 12, 2000, your mother became part of a very exclusive club when she was inducted as a Disney legend, as an employee whose imagination, talents, and dreams have created the Disney magic. What was your mother's reaction at being declared a Disney legend? She was so modest, Michael, all the times that she was uh, given any kind of acclaim or awards, um, and so I, it was downplayed. It was always downplayed when there were any, like I wasn't invited to her retirement party in 86. Partly, I think, because she thought I was too busy with my uh, one-year-old baby at the time, but she didn't expect it to be much more than punch and cookies, and it was quite a, a spread. You know, they, they really did it up for her. Um, by the time she became a legend in 2000, she did invite me to attend that ceremony with her. Not our whole family, just me. And I was really proud of her and got to hear her up there with, with Roy Disney receiving her award and giving her own little speech. And uh, it was a very proud moment. And we are the proud uh, occupants of the Legend Award itself. Mm-hmm. Um, now, but she you... always downplayed any credit. And, and in the early days, women weren't credited, so her name never appeared on the movies or in any, in any form in print. Um, so her modesty kind of worked with the company practice and, and the practice of those times. Right. I remember Marty Scalar said, um, I was having lunch with him, and we were talking about that, about how some of the more uh, current Imagineers want the credit. And he said, you know, there's only one name on the door, and that's Walt Disney. Yeah, that's and how he operated yeah, and and his feeling was, if you want the credit, you need to go elsewhere. So. And whenever people would ask her how she felt, I remember one interview not too long ago that Tim O'Day kept asking her, and and how does it feel that that the things that you created, you know, people are still visiting and still admiring, and she she just always directed it back to Walt. Walt was such a visionary person, and and he he was the one you know who was so imaginative, and so she always credited Walt. And that's common for everybody that worked with Walt; they always yeah, credited it back to him. Yeah, yeah, he was quite quite a a team builder. You know, he he should be credited for his imagination, his fierce. Uh, Spirit of adventure, you know, there was lots of setbacks, as you know, and uh, she just had nothing but admiration for his uh, can-do attitude and the teamwork that he um, generated among them. Now, now Harriet Burns was honored in 1992 with a window on Main Street USA in Disneyland with the inscription, The Artisan's Loft, Handmade Miniatures by Harriet Burns. She was the first woman in Disney history to receive this honor. Can you tell us about your mother on this day in the dedication ceremony? You know, I can't because... I wasn't much a part of it. It was one of those things she downplayed, and I got to see the window afterwards, both on Main Street 
and they gave her uh, a copy of it. They gave her a duplicate copy of the full-size window, and it's, it remained in a box in her basement. <laughs> so she downplayed it, and um, the reference to the Artisan's Loft handmade miniatures was her connection with Walt about the miniatures. So that was really sweet, and, and I understood that, but uh, she just downplayed all this fanfare. You know, that's kind of how she saw it as, oh, the fans are stirring up a fuss. And uh, it, my dad attended the ceremony with her, but I wasn't invited. Boy, if I get a window, my kids are going to be there, and my grandkids, and my aunts and uncles, and my cousins. <laughs> I know, and boy, I would have the recreation of the window prominently displayed. Yeah, <laughs> I'd build, my, build a room around it. So uh, it's pretty funny how she downplayed all that, and I didn't hear much about it. Well, she sounds like she was a very humble woman. Yeah, I, I have to say she was modest and humble. Her relationships were, you know, pretty much her priority. So if someone else was getting an award, she would whoop it up for them. Mm-hmm. So, and, my, you know, I benefited from that at times as a child, and so did my kids. But she was also determined to keep me humble and keep me uh, considerate, uh, you know, being raised as an only child and everything. She wanted me to be uh, very considerate and um, gracious. So that ladylikeness of her, that was kind of where she was at with me. Now, did she, are you also um, a creative person? I mean, do you have I creative outlets? I was going to be an artist also. I was an art major for a year also at SMU, her alma mater and my dad's. And I realized in hindsight it was a tough act to follow. And I was kind of going through my young adult rebellion. So I switched after a few changes in schools and a few changes in majors to psychology where I've settled. So I'm a psychotherapist and have been all through my adult career. But I had artistic leanings and I won an award at 17 years old with 17 Magazine for um, a national design competition. And I got sent to New York and I could have easily gone into the field of fashion design at that point because I I had a thing about uh, fabric and textures and sewing that was kind of part of my forte. But um, I switched to psychology and now my two daughters are making their way in the world of arts. My older daughter is a designer and does both interior design and web design. And my younger daughter just graduated in musical theater and uh, is a performing artist. Oh, so, Both so of you're, which I think were influenced by my mom's yeah. creativity and her genes. I'm sure, I'm sure. And now for our listeners who would like to view your mother's window, um, it is located above the Carriage Place Clothing Company on Main Street at Disneyland. And right then, across from the side of City Hall and the Firehouse. Oh, okay, good, good. Oh, so yeah, right above the Emporium there. Right. So. And, and sadly, your mother um, passed away due to complications from a heart condition on July 25th, 2008. And then yeah, in, her heart surgery got complicated. And then in 2010, you and co-author Disney historian John Perry published a tribute book to your mother titled Walt Disney's First Lady of Imagineering, Harriet Burns. And this is a very unique biography in that it's made up of personal memories and messages shared with you and your family after your mother's passing. What inspired you to write this book about your mother and take such a unique approach in telling her story? It kind of fell together as a result of all the stories that poured 
to us, towards us, after her passing. And people would see these letters and cards and things and say, you should write a book. And instead of doing the traditional biography, you know, everything about my mom was kind of non-traditional anyway, it made sense to just compile these tributes together uh, in kind of a colorful, weaving-together tapestry. So we've, we've created the tribute book, which isn't technically a biography, in the sections of the family tributes, the friends tributes, and the Disney colleagues tributes. And I'm very proud of it, and it kind of weaves together all the different facets of her life. It was kind of therapeutic for me to do it um, because the stories were so upbeat, and many of them are funny or inspiring or touching. Um, It weaves together how other people saw her, and there's a lot of the colorful backstory of the Disney model shop, the Imagineers goofing around in the stories that the colleagues tell and some of the pictorial tributes, some of the pictures that were in her retirement book that they created for her uh, with her retirement party, we've reproduced in the book, and and they're pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and reading this book is a, is a very personal experience as a result of all these personal memories. I came away wishing I knew your mother, and yet I felt as if I do know her as a result of this book. Well, that's what we wanted to accomplish, so I'm very honored and pleased to hear that that was your experience. And i got to say that now it's almost five years since she passed. It's four years since we published the book, and we still sell steady copies. You know, from all over the world we get requests, so we sell many copies a month, and it's it's, uh, very, very uh, gratifying. Now, for our listeners who would like to read about your mother, how can they obtain your book? Either from our website, which is imagineerharriet.com, or on Amazon. And as you say, the, the title of the book is Walt Disney's First Lady of Imagineering, Harriet Burns, which I wrote with my co-author, Don Perry. I got to put in a plug for my daughter, who was the unofficial designer of the book. We worked with the publishing company designer as well, but... She cracked the whip, and uh, you know most of the design of the pages and the photographs and so forth that you see, um, she had a hand in. Chelsea Clare. Yeah, and it is beautifully laid out. And, Thank you. And there's a remarkable number of photos in the book. So, yeah. for people who enjoy Disney history, this is really a treasure trove of photographs. Of well, thank you for that bump. <laughs> we appreciate that because we did have to dig through the dig. We d- dug through the dig for many of these photos, and we had to get permission for many of them from Disney Enterprises, and they were very generous with us. So we're very pleased with the the pictorial essay that it is. And it's for that reason that we had it in hard copy rather than the paperback or the ebook version because it, it really is a coffee table style book that, you know, even for people to glance at, they really enjoy the photos. It, it tells a, a story of Disney history from the 50s up through the 80s, really. And we will have links to those sites in our show notes. And um, what is you. what is it like now for your family, for you and your family, to visit Disneyland and see your mother's talents and craftsmanship being enjoyed by new generations of children? It's so touching because I especially look at it and say, who knew 
this would live on and on. I lived with the deadlines and the experimental trial and error and who knew that the tiki birds and the small world dolls and the pirates and the haunted mansion and even storybook land, which was a ride early on from the original Disneyland, would live on and on and and be so enchanting for generations to come. I can't wait till I have grandkids someday and can take them to the park and we can tell them about their great grandma. Yeah, and and you know we take our four-year-old granddaughter to Disneyland, and all of the attractions you just named are all her favorites. <laughs> and you know she calls the the so Tiki sweet. Room the Singing Bird. She calls Small World the Dollies, and we we have to go on all Storybook Land. She just loves. We we, we oh, have to so go sweet. on all of them multiple times. You know so when sweet. we're there. So four-year-old One of the is thrills that I had in in the early days of the book being out is that I got an, an email from a, a mom who wanted to know if her daughter could could buy this book as and and create a biography. That the the assignment for these third graders was to do a biography, and uh, she wanted they were supposed to dress like their their person and. Uh, even though it wasn't a technical biography, the teacher approved it. And it so, so happened, I noticed from this mom's uh, area code that she was in my locale. So long story short, this third grader did her presentation in Napa, where I, I work, and I was able to attend it. And the little girl, the third grader, who dressed like my mom and introduced herself as Harriet Burns, born in 1928 in Texas, she had a PowerPoint, and she put on the song of the Tiki Birds for the kids to hear. And as soon as the song came out on, all the kids started singing along and dancing to it. That's wonderful. That was just a few years ago. It was so I mean, adorable. Yeah, really, that's that's like, you know, magical in a way. It was that, pretty magical. Yeah. I kind of teared up and I knew my mom was somewhere in the room just laughing and clapping. <laughs> up above. So, so your mother's and like the little girl ended the talk by saying, and one of Harriet Burns's saying is, "Oh, you shouldn't have," and she did a little gesture with her hand, and uh, that was from interviewing me and finding out some of her personal uh, quirks. So <laughs> that was pretty cute. <laughs> So your mother's legacy of creativity, artistry, and innovation will be enjoyed by generations of children and adults who visit Disney theme parks and watch Disney films. What would you like our listeners to take away from our conversation today about Harriet Burns? My mom would always say, live your dream and work hard and you can be anything. And so if if she was being interviewed today and, and people were to ask her what she would want them to be left with, you know, work hard and live your dream. Well, Pam, thank you so much for joining us today on the Diz Unplugged to talk about It's been an honor and a delight to speak with you, Michael, and to share this with, with others. Thank you. To, to, to talk about Harriet Burns, one of the first of the three original Imagineers, it's really been a delight. And Thank that, you, Michael, and thanks to all our fans. We we have over 700 Facebook fans now on our Facebook page, and it's just amazing how it keeps on keeping on. It is, I and mean, I think that's a tribute to um, your your mother's legacy, definitely. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And that concludes this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening, and be magical. Be magical.